Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Stephen Hall. Stephen grew up in Scotland in the 1960s, singing in church choirs and learning the bagpipes. He emigrated to the U.S. at age 15 and after high school, moved to New York City, where he hung out with artists, dancers, and musicians. There, he met Allen Ginsberg, who invited him to attend Naropa Buddhist University in Colorado. At Naropa, Stephen studied writing with Ginsberg and William Burroughs and music with Don Cherry. Upon returning to New York City, Ginsberg introduced Stephen to Arthur Russell, who asked him to sing and play guitar as a duo. Stephen and Arthur performed together in downtown clubs like CBGB's, The Mud Club, and Max's Kansas City, performing under the name Sailboats. Stephen later sang on some of Arthur's disco hits like Tell You Today and Is It All Over My Face. After Arthur died, Stephen and a bunch of mutual friends formed Arthur's Landing to remember Arthur by playing his music. Meanwhile, Narosta Steel is the name Stephen uses for his own music, queer love songs and remixes he creates for and with friends. In keeping with his gracious spirit, Stephen's allowing us to premiere the latest track from Narosta Steel's long-distance collaboration with Dropout Orchestra, entitled Please Don't. Stick around until the end of the episode for that. Stephen is a participant in and connection to a vital era in New York City and, in fact, American music, art, and culture. I hope you enjoy our talk. So you're in the Midwest now? Yes, I just moved here from Brooklyn to Champaign, Illinois. So I've spent quite a bit of time in mainland China, and it's almost like being back there because maybe 75 or 80 percent of the students I'm in this college of the University of Illinois. So I'm actually, this is, I'm in student housing here, are all Chinese. So if I walk out my door, everyone on the street basically is a young Chinese student, partly because the university here has a lot of, it's one of the best engineering schools. So there's a lot of students from mainland and from uh, Taiwan. So... So it's kind of nostalgic for me. I feel like I'm back in China. I, I wish I wish I was. Yeah. Tell me about that. What led you to China? A person led me there. During the time I was doing the band, Arthur's Landing, one of the many struggles within the band was that I was spending a lot of time in Thailand. In fact, I got an apartment in Bangkok for something like $90 a month, in, not in a tourist area, more in an area where I was more local people. And then I was there during one of the military coups where I was suspected of being a government plant in where I was living. And at one point I was stopped with a bunch of machetes sort of surrounding me. And I got out of it because I have a tattoo on my back in Thai, which says Buddhist army. So I told them I was on no side and I showed them that and they go. Yeah, so I was spending a lot of time in Thailand, and then I was about to go back there. I did some music projects there, also did some recording. I met I met someone in New York, like the night before I left to go to Thailand, and then so I, that was someone from who was just in school from main from the mainland, 
And then I followed him back to China after he left school. China is really surreal. It's really like a science fiction movie, the, the modern parts of it, because they're just these whole cities that are just brand new and sometimes empty because they build them before. It's like we build a city and then people will come kind of idea. And then in my time in Hong Kong, also before that, I got involved with a lot of traditional musicians. I tried to track down and tried to learn how to play traditional music. That's very difficult. So I've only spent maybe a week or 10 days in China. I was, I was in Beijing in the spring of 2021. And then we took a trip by train out to the, to Gobeku um, in the countryside, which was sort of billed to me as the closest part of the wall that you could get to that was non-commercialized and rural. Not, not that it was untouched, but that it was rural. And it's funny because I keyed on on something you said when you were first explaining China it was over 21 years that I've been there, but, and I was not very, there very long, but I find myself both thinking about it a lot and reconciling with the fact that I may never go back. Mm -hmm. It's just such a bizarre feeling to have about a place. You know, it wasn't like I was immersed in China. It wasn't like I had roots there in any way. It sounds like maybe you did, but it definitely was, it was very powerful. It was a very, very powerful place. I did a couple of concerts in China that were a lot of fun. Our audiences were very open to what I was doing, which that was mostly disco music. And also in Hong Kong, there's a group of musicians who will get around to talking about Arthur Rosso, who thought that I was kind of close to a god because I had worked with Arthur Rosso. Because they they take disco music, it's like to them, it's like Beethoven and Mozart, which is the way that the co-producer of Arthur's work, Steve DeQuisto, used to talk about Arthur in terms of Mozart. But there's this group of DJs who are very, very serious in Hong Kong about studying disco music and playing disco music and trying to contact the DJs who were involved in that period. So I was treated like like a superstar in Hong Kong because of simply because I knew Arthur Arthur Russell. <laughs> so I did some uh, a lot of fun there, doing some concerts there. So I I miss being in Hong Kong more than anywhere, and I also feel very sad about what's happened to Hong Kong <clears throat> and my friends there. You know, who have really had a tough time. The, the singer that I worked with there, Anthony Wong, was arrested because he sang at an anti-government rally. So he was basically arrested for it, singing and charged with sedition, but then he was released. So uh, that was fortunate. But yeah, so people I know have had these really serious experiences. On the other hand, I had it musically, there's just so much there to be found. I mean, when I, when I was staying in, I was in Foshan, which is next to Guangzhou in the southern part. I was living in an area where it was more industrial and not so many foreigners were there. And by accident, one day I heard some Beijing opera music and it turned out to be a troop of, of older Beijing musicians who met like twice a week just to play. And so I started joining them and trying to, to with my guitar, trying to play along with them. They would give me music, but I couldn't follow the music because it was in numbers. It was the old notation of doing music in numbers. They didn't really give me any direction. They just said, basically, sit down and play. And they just wanted me to just play along. You know? So I learned a lot by doing that. When I was in Hong Kong, I, I met a bunch of Cantonese musicians that I would play with sometimes too. Yeah. What do you know about how disco traveled there? I guess it makes a bit more sense to me for Hong Kong because it was more of an open, an open environment for so long. But did 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 disco and Western music transfer to mainland as well? 
I think even more so now than when it was popular. I think it didn't really penetrate very much during that time. But I think now, like the DJ that I work with, Thomas Guido, this guy from Warsaw, he was running a club in Shenzhen where he was bringing in like big DJs from Europe and people were loving what they were doing. And he also had a house band as well as, you know, having DJs. And they were this, this young, very affluent, high-tech clientele, like this super class of super rich, young super rich in China who were um, very much into, like, serious about list, actually listening to the music. And they knew a lot about funk music as well, you know, the more esoteric forms. When you're in an environment like that, where you're playing with people from essentially a different cultural context, how do you connect musically? What's your way in? Well, like the club I played in in Shenzhen, which was a like a big, big time club. I mean, one of the few times I got paid well, they had, the house band were all foreigners who were basically jazz, jazz players who could play anything at the drop of a hat. I could play one of Arthur's songs and within a minute they'd have the chart written. People like that, things that I can't do. I, you know, I work by instinct. And the DJ who was programming, he was a guy from Warsaw who ended up in Shenzhen. His, his girlfriend had gone there to work in the tech industry and then he just, someone found out he was a DJ and then he ended up being the music director for this big club. It's like, the idea in China when I was there, that was about five or six years ago. And I think apart from the slowdown with COVID, it will, it will probably rev up again, was there were people opening businesses and making money just everywhere you would go. And that's something I haven't seen in really anywhere else. I mean, I've seen that amount of energy in Bangkok, but not, not in an organized way in the way it is in, in China. Like places I was staying in Foshan, it was being like I saw traditional villages that were just being smashed. But and then the people in them given apartments and high rises that were replacing their villages. And then I, I watched outside my window, a high rise just go up in a few days, basically. And a lot of it was just manual labor, just hundreds of people working together in complete um, harmony. That was a marvel to see. And that's that's part of it. And there's no there's no secret to what. Just a matter of working harder and also being able to work very well together. And a lot of the traditional music is un, is in unison, which is kind of similar to that. Because like when I would be learning the Cantonese song, the missions would just play it over and over and over again. They would give me no direction except just they would say, just keep playing. Just keep playing. Just play what we're playing. And that was their direction. So the direction was just play. So that was very, very tough. But eventually I, I kind of got the hang of it. And the, the other thing I did when I played with the Beijing Opera guys was I ended up just playing against them or playing my own thing, and they didn't mind. So I was doing more like a jazz thing because I couldn't keep up with what they were doing. It was so complex and sometimes atonal. I just couldn't like process it. So I would play chords while they were playing single notes. So I would find my own way of, of fitting in with them. Are you happy with the end result of the music? Was it... Was it satisfying? It was very sad because when I went back to make recordings, they had disbanded. So that's another thing about, about in China, the, the pace of progress is so fast that things just evaporate. You know, a, a village might evaporate. Well, I mean, in Guangzhou, they had a traditional opera school. So, uh, and I saw those guys do some concerts in, a, in the local tourist area, uh, the same guys, but I didn't get a chance to play with them then. So certain parts of the culture is still being kept, but there's also a lot of appropriation of culture in China where traditional culture is presented as a kind of virtue, but it's not really being supported. It's more like a front, and that's kind of disturbing. I had that impression even even 20 years ago, and the, the person that we went over and stayed with was Chinese-American, and she said basically, 
every six months the city transformed. Like it was just like gone, new city, gone, you know, or, or whole chunks, neighborhoods, and that the past was I, I think you said it very well. It, it was it was spoken of as though it was revered, but it wasn't really respected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before you left, as you were sort of spending time in Thailand and, and still in the States, what was the end of your experience in New York? Like what, what were you doing in the, the latter part of your time in New York? Well, ever since I was growing up in Scotland, my idea was to live in New York, that New York was the, just the place to be. And I think when I did move there, like when I was in high school, basically started going there and making connections there. It was the center of the world in terms of style, especially in terms of music, coming out the best studios, the most interesting clubs where disco music was coming out of the clubs. It was those particular clubs there that people were following, that the certain DJs that were coming out of New York. That's not so anymore. And also, during the last few years, even before COVID, I was doing a lot more collaborating by virtually, by sending people music files. I mean, the, the author's landing experience was a very social experience, but it also kind of, bur- kind of got burned out because of it, because everybody's emotions became so intense, it just kind of all flared up. Well, I know this manager guy who said he would never work with older musicians. I would never represent older musicians because they're just totally impossible, because they're so set in their ways. I mean, also it's like the most spoiled of children are musician. So if they've been indulged, I mean, as much as maybe I have, you know, I've been basically spoiled my whole life. I saw a great interview with Oprah where she interviewed a, a writer, a very popular fiction writer, and he said, people don't realize it took a tremendous amount of work and planning uh, to get to the point where now I can do absolutely nothing and be completely free. And then also that that's the only thing that's valuable in terms of if you have your health to have freedom. When you say you were indulged, I find that hard to believe. The way I The way it lands for me is that You've you've created the life you wanted, and maybe that the universe cooperated at times. How were you indulged? Well, I think I've just been lucky that, or either I met met people or found people who have helped me. Like I was thinking earlier today about about uh, in terms of Arthur's work, how so much of it was made possible by his partner, and that I had a partner at that at that time also for many years who's just simply. I mean, there's a, there's an expression that the best teacher is simply is who, the one who gives you permission. And you can see that in a Buddhist context or just in a general context. I mean, that was my portrait teacher in high school. That, that was what he would say. So the idea of having a partner who supports you, I think is a really big part of it. Because when Arthur and I were working together, we lived at like two blocks apart. We were both basically married. We had partners who were, who were, were supporting us. And basically, we let us just do what we wanted all day, which was to get together and play some music. So to be able to have that freedom is, I think, is a privilege. So I don't know if that thing's a combination of luck and also arranging my life so I can be able to do that. I mean, even now, I'm very lucky to have the free time. But when you get older and you develop a sense of irony, this turns 65, then sometimes you question what to do with that free time. And also maybe feel a little bit guilty about it. It's funny you say, you say that because as you were speaking, I was thinking I was going to ask you and I'm, I'm going to ask you, do you not feel you deserved the support and the indulgence? Like, is, am I getting too sort of armchair psychologist to ask that? No, I don't think it's that deep because I think what, one aspect of the few people I've known, like Arthur, who I'd say were a genius, was that they just 
couldn't help doing what they did. I mean, there was just something about them that was really driven. Uh, so when I think about the amount of work that Arthur produced, you know, during the, the short time he was around, it's really amazing. There are, in the New York Public Library, there are books and books and books, notebooks of ideas of notes written down. There are, there are dozens of tapes. I think a lot of musicians have that manic obsessive quality. So he would tend to go through lots of takes of different things and not be able to decide which ones were the best. So I have that kind of quality as well. Yeah, part of it is being able to forgive yourself for your own mistakes and also be able to let go of, um, for me, being able to let go of, of recordings is difficult sometimes because I'm such a perfectionist. So critical of my own voice in particular, I'm very confident of my guitar playing abilities because I think that's something I've really worked on. And also I've often been more comfortable in the second position. One thing about Arthur's Landing was to get used to being in the, in the front of the band and to be able to accept that. I mean, Peter Garden, the saxophone player who also worked with Arthur, I said to him, I like to usually turn my back on the audience because I like to face the band and sort of get into the groove with them. So Peter said, well, if that's what you're going to do, then put something interesting on your back for people to look at. <laughs> so, it's like a very practical solution to the problem. So I'm conscious of that, yeah. The other singer, Arthur's Landing Joyce, I mean, she would be very shy, and so she would often wear sunglasses on stage as a way of getting over that. Because it's probably impossible not to, um, you know, the conversation's already made lots of mention of Arthur Russell. And yeah. something that I had pointed out to me before we spoke was, was the other side of something I knew, which was when you read interviews or accounts of people who were close with or who worked with Arthur, the impact he had on people, it still, it still feels very visceral all this time later. Well, it's really ongoing because people who encounter, particularly who encounter his voice, and one obstacle we had as a band was that people were really attached to Arthur's voice. So they weren't necessarily interested in hearing our versions of the songs, although our verses might be quite interesting or a different way of looking at them. So I've often people say that when they hear him for the first time, they just like have this like wow moment, you know, and it's just like something opens up in their head. And I think that's exactly what Arthur was trying to do. I'm not as serious about Buddhism as I was when I was younger, but Arthur was totally serious about the Buddhism aspect of trying to break through, trying to get past his own ego, and also a very real dialogue with, with Allen Ginsberg. That, I mean, it was basically a, a daily dialogue about how to apply these concepts to what they were doing, because we weren't political in the way that Alan was, but in our music, we were trying to be completely free, and that for us was like a political act was to have no restrictions on what we were doing. Also what we were doing in the studio, because at that point, people were getting into the, the idea of you could do anything in the studio, that the studio was like an instrument. My idea of being in heaven was to be in the studio, that literally we were in heaven. And for Arthur, the idea of being in heaven was to be given the keys to a studio by one of his friends who was an engineer and then just left there all night just to do whatever he wanted, just total freedom. You, you mentioned also earlier that not only the vast amount of work he created in his life, but the perfectionism. And is it safe to assume that those two things together are really what kept, what amounts to be so little of the work to come out in his lifetime? He just couldn't, he couldn't free it. He couldn't release it. And he was never done with it. Like, what was that about from your understanding? 
Well, he had two very, very distinct sides to polar sides to his personality, which was being supremely confident. He knew he was really talented. He knew he had something. On the other hand, he was very scared because he had had experiences where he played in a club in the West Village where the owner who had booked him the club literally told him to get off the stage that his voice was terrible. So, and that's why he ended up working with singers like me or Ernie or Joyce, Ernie Brooks, uh, Joyce Bowden, who were more comfortable being out in front, you know, singing. Because he, he had no idea that he would be the singer. That, that kind of developed later. And also partly when he got sick, that developed more like a kind of practical aspect because he was just simply at home, not doing things at home. So, yeah. I just saw an interview with Billy Joel where he said exactly the same thing. And also John Lennon said the thing about never liking their own voice. But in the case of Arthur, who would not be writing for like a gay song for a woman to sing, although sometimes women ended up singing those songs, it was just singing whatever he was thinking about that day, which was usually a lot of his songs have the quality of kind of a diary of whatever he was doing that day or what usually what he was saying or what he was want to say to his boyfriend when his boyfriend got home from work. Like, what did I do today? What did I see today? Was he able to communicate outside of music? Like, was that how he communicated with people? Or it was just it was just more of a practical him channeling his life through his music? He was actually very charming and one of the funniest people I've ever met. So he was very good at putting people at ease. And because working as a producer, because he was coming from being a musician, he was very good at putting other musicians at ease. And uh, I found the same thing myself. I work as a producer. So especially to work with singers, to be a singer, to work with other singers, it really helps. There was, there was just something about him that, uh, there was just something about him. I've only met a few people like that. It's, it could, you could say it was charm. There's only a few people I've met who have that, that quality that so people were sort of, they were sort of drawn to him. And when he started playing music, people just got it. You know, they just understood right away that he was doing something that was really interesting. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. How do you view, as a creative person, the performance versus the studio? Do you have a preference, or are they different sides of the same coin? Because of the way I work with Arthur, we always tried to have a party in the studio and the same thing on stage. So my idea is to create, and I was fortunate, Arthur's Landing had a few big concerts. We were managed to make them into dance concerts. And my favorite thing especially was the few times we got to play outdoors. That's really special. But I went on from there to finding other, you know, new people to play with and also doing things on my own. So since, as I said, what I do in the studio, I try to get everything have everything to be as live as possible and as Arthur did. And when I, like when we do performances, we try to have the band start playing even before people get in. So it's kind of like that's already happening when they get there. For me, the studio is more sort of a slog, like hard work, because I don't have the technical skills that some of my friends have who are mixing all day long. And so sometimes for me, the what I'm looking for is very elusive in terms of finding a mix because that's not a natural talent for me. But uh, sometimes I can find it, but it can, can, that part is mysterious and elusive for me. So I have a great respect for people who can mix well. For instance, the two people who did the mix, most of the mixing on the Arthur Sanding, the first LP for Strut, um, Peter Zumo and Brennan Green, 
They're just both like alchemists in terms of getting a mix and both for their own specialty. Ren is a DJ, so he comes at it from wanting to make, you know, dance mixes and he made some amazing mixes. Peter's approach is much more open and more jazzy. And just some of his mixes were very airy and very, very nice, you know, especially when we were improvising and Peter would be doing live mixes. So that's often something that Arthur strives to strive to do. And then uh, Steve DeQuisto, who worked with Arthur and then worked with Arthur Sanding, his whole thing was we mix it live. So when we did recording, one of the big recording we did with him, he refused to record it to multi-track. He only recorded it to two-track and that. He said, either you get it or you don't. And, you know, now 40 years later, I, I still agonize over that because I, my guitar was out of tune for half of the tracks. And that's one thing that drives me completely crazy. And then sometimes my vocals are not right. So I, that's it. So there's a whole bunch of dats from those sessions that were never released because for various reasons, they were lit sticks on them or I have a bunch of dats like in the, in the closet next to me here that, and my original dat machine that I'm going to. One thing about being in Illinois is I have time here to do things like that, go over old dats. So one thing about the second phase of my life in terms of getting older, not performing so much and not socializing so much is sort of going through archives of stuff and trying to find things that are interesting to edit or to release um, from the past. And again, the big question I've been, I deal with is like the stuff that I listen to when I record when I'm younger has no sense of irony. So the thing I'm battling with as I get older is to how to record things. Like I've been working on for several years on a, a project with my twin sister, who's a much better singer than I am, um, of country music, which she loves. And the, the real challenge for me is to sing country music because to sing without irony is a real challenge for a New Yorker is a real challenge. Some of the great singers like George Jones was basically Arthur's favorite country singer. He's got that quality, like to be able to sing without irony. So that's the one thing I'm working on. The other thing is to, to add vibrato because Arthur's number one rule and the only time he would really get angry was he never wanted you to sing with any vibrato. So the idea was that you, that you were not adding too much emotion. You were singing like more like a trumpet player. He loved Chet Atkins because Chet Atkins sang like a trumpet player. So he said he would play Chet Atkins singing and say, I want you to sing like that, but no vibrato. And he would get furious if any of us, or Ernie or Joyce or myself, would sing, would add any vibrato. So one thing I've been trying to do in the last month is just let myself sing with vibrato. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because, I mean, I guess it's a, such a defining characteristic because I can recall specific instances of reading references to Arthur or his voice and it would always say, and his vibrato-less voice, or, yes. <laughs> or completely free of vibrato. It's like, it's such a defining characteristic. And also the idea of hitting the note just pure, uh, as opposed to jazz singers who usually come under the note and then slide up to it. And a lot of the singers we were admiring were doing that, but his idea was just completely pure. And then at that time, he was also, when I first started working with him, he was playing drones on the Casio. He would put down a key he held down with a pencil and a book, held down one or two keys on the Casio and just play along with the drones. The idea was that our voice would be another drone, basically. Can you look back and identify when irony crept into your sort of life or mindset or when it started to need to be manifested through your, your work? You said when you were younger, there's no irony in your work, and now you struggle to reconcile that. When did it manifest? I've just been thinking about this lately. 
the idea of, of alert in the organizations is to be very smart, to be kind of intellectual, and to sort of not really be too emotional, to be sort of removed, sort of distant and cool. It's, it's interesting to be away from New York and then think about trying to go over that and to be a bit more emotional. Also, the big struggle for me has been to accept my own voice, even though one thing I'm proud of is that Arthur picked me because I, I, my voice has her quality that could play very well with other singers. I mean, we, we signed out in our standing room when I was singing with other singers, particularly with my twin sister, which is magical when it happens. The whole thing about brothers and sisters singing together. Sorry to jump around through the timeline, but I'm, I'm curious also as to when did New York become something you were aware of? Like, how, did you, how, how was that yearning to go to New York instilled in you as somebody growing up so far away? I grew up watching the movies because when I was a boy, young boy, we didn't even have a TV in Scotland. And going to movies was a really big deal. I mean, the big widescreen, Pat Vision, so to see John Wayne in the Alamo, things like that, like real Hollywood. People in America underestimate the effect of American media on other cultures. I mean, I, I saw that particularly in Asia when I went to Asia. Like when you go to China now, I mean, and young people in like in the Cantonese area in the South were all into hip-hop music and wanting to dress like the hip-hop stars that they saw on TV. So, and also Korean pop stars as well. So that's another sort of interesting culture trend. Given the time that you were in New York in the earlier part of your life and in the, the creative part of your life, how did you come up against hip-hop's sort of early years? And like, how did that influence or impact or what did it mean to you as an observer or a participant in music at that time what was what was happening How, did hip-hop bleed into your world i guess is what i'm asking not so much i mean arthur was working with sleeping by records and they started to get into pretty early into doing hip-hop music i think but i don't it wasn't really part of our world so much i came up songwriting and songs from the text because i you know i was studying writing and I was doing music for fun, and I was writing, I was studying poetry at Columbia. And my thing about hip-hop was that as a literary form, it was so inferior, that most of the lyrics were so easy, the, the rhymes. And like one of the rules I still have, uh, I hardly ever break in my songwriting, is I never rhyme. And I've only done that a few times. So I always had a problem with the rhyme in hip-hop because it was so facile. But I really liked the production and the sound and the beats. But I don't really know very much about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, that surprises me to a certain extent because I have what you know is potentially an erroneous sense of that mid-late 70s, early mid-80s era of it being, everybody sort of being cross-pollinated, whether it was you know, the no wave downtown stuff and how that butted into dance music, which also had sort of the hip hop adjacent community and then the indie rock stuff going on and the post punk. I just, I, as I delved more into that world of New York, it occurred to me just how, I don't know, in a way, how few people there really were. Like it was, you know, obviously it's New York, it's massive, but it was really, it seemed like everybody knew each other. (laughs) I think because there were certain places like the kitchen where people were open to you know, having different styles and you know, Arthur was programming there for a while and he brought in all kinds of different styles. So yeah, I think when you think of it in terms of the sexual revolution, like following that kind of music revolution afterwards, that 
the idea of things opening up and people being more open-minded. Yeah. The thing about Arthur and myself and some other musicians I know, which was said about Bob Dylan, like he stayed on a, there's a famous a French pop singer who's like the Elvis of France, Johnny Oh, something. Johnny Holiday. Yeah, he stayed at Johnny Holiday's farm in the south of France. And Johnny Holiday said, uh, what was your impression of Bob Dylan? He asked him, what, Bob Dylan, what was Bob Dylan listening to? And Johnny Holiday said, the only thing Bob Dylan ever listened to was Bob Dylan. <laughs> and uh, so that really is like a huge weight off of my shoulders because ours and I would just spend hours and hours listening to different mixes of his stuff or my own stuff. And basically, that's still what I do. I mean, I, I love to encounter you know, songs by other singers. I love to do covers. What is your music? And I don't mean your music as a creator. I mean, what's the music you hold dear or that most impacted you before you started making music? Well, I grew up in Scotland, so I was given, I had a great music education, both in school where they had a full orchestra and also in church. And not only a traditional church where I was in like the church choir, I was involved in youth groups who were playing folk music. So that's where I get into playing acoustic guitar and singing harmonies and also uh, trying harmonies that were kind of way out, which people were open to in those groups. So like playing on a beach in the west coast of Scotland, Christian youth groups and singing harmonies and church songs. And then at the same time, I played the front horn in the school orchestra. So studying classical music and then I played the bagpipe as well. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so I have a background in all of those things. And then, you know, I came to America, bang, wow, which is what I always wanted to do. So my mother remarried and we came here. And then it was like an explosion of listening to music. And then I started playing guitar seriously. And But also Dulcimer because of Johnny Mitchell, um, huge influence in terms of the way I approach playing the guitar. When I started working with Arthur, he was... He went through like a whole bunch of genres during the time we were working together. At that point, he wanted to play country music. And he wanted me to play, he liked my guitar playing when we met because it was very simple and flat. I had his syncopations. And then the other thing was that on the guitar, I have this, this guitar has a wide finger, finger fretboard. Yeah. My hands are big. I would, I'm made to be a piano player. I'm okay on the piano because I can play an octave. This is very bad for playing a guitar. So I can't play an A, but I could play an open A or I play the A, the same A further up, spaced out where I could play it. So when Arthur and I were playing acoustic guitar together, if he was playing an A, I couldn't play the A. So I would have to play a variation of it. So we ended up playing variations and sort of melding together where we'd be playing the same, but I, or I'd be playing an open version. Like you've got the, the A, I would be playing the open version. So it would end up, and then we'd be harmonizing, so it would end up being quite nicely melding together, so kind of by accident. And then later he got into, went into kind of heavy metal on the cello. Like he was trying to find out which, studying guitar magazine and trying to find out which pedals the heavy metal players were using and then getting those pedals. I like the big off, which also, and studying John Martin. John Martin was getting into these heavy pedal sounds, trying to find out what pedals he was using. Then into disco, and then into, and then through rock through the Necessaries and the Flying Hearts. And then what he ultimately wanted was to be like Philip Glass, was doing classical. So they went into doing the opera with Robert Wilson, where everything kind of fell apart. And after that, he kind of went into seclusion because of that experience with Robert Wilson was so you know, crushing. In one way, it was his masterpiece, but then it was only performed once. 
in a like workshop setting. And then Robert Wilson wouldn't perform it again because they had such a bad experience working together. And it was simply two big geniuses, bitches, both gay bitches, very controlling and very confident. At that point, Arthur was really confident. And Robert Wilson was a superstar. And it was just like, <laughs> like that. It was, it was just, or like two magnets coming together and, and like repelling each other. So Bruce produced a great masterpiece. The, the work is amazing, but it never got this full, you know, maybe later or maybe after Robertson's death, it will be performed. Yeah. <laughs> did they, did they speak after that or did they go separate ways? Well, no, it, when it was being in rehearsal, Arthur was forbidden to go to the rehearsals. At that point, their relationship was so bad. And this classic. I've, I've been in a situation like this myself. I did music for a theater production of this Hong Kong director who was famous for being difficult to work with. And we did this big performance in the West End in London. It was a really big deal. And the composer had probably, I think he had quit at the last minute because the director was so difficult. So they hired me and then flew me to London to do music for this big production. And then we didn't get along and ended up being like, when the night of the performance, we weren't speaking to each other. I was up in the balcony doing the sound, and he was, uh, yeah, I mean, especially in theater, things like that can get very, behind the scenes can be more dramatic than what you see on stage. What's the issue? Like, what, 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 what is there that there's so much room to have discord over? Is it everything? Yeah. <laughs> I think, no, a lot of it has to do with, like, what, what came up in Arthur's Landing. We were all of us loved Arthur's music and loved Arthur. So one of the things that came up was the production, how something would sound. And that became like a big like thing because it all had to do with our feelings. And we, some of us, like I was working as a producer for years. Peter Zumo, the trombone player, is like a home studio he'd been working in for years. And then Brandon, the DJ, had his own home studio. And then Joyce, the, the, the other singer, also had a studio in Raleigh. So everyone had their own particular ideas about how things might sound. And then also we thought we were going to suddenly get really famous. And if we if we hadn't been foolish, probably would have a certain you know, a certain degree of, of fame. I've talked about this before, a certain desperation. And we were all like we were all older and this is kind of like a last chance to make it. And also we kind of got a taste of it or something that could be really big if we could kind of like keep keep cool, but we couldn't keep cool. So as I said about working with older musicians, everyone's kind of set in their own ways. And the other respect of, uh, you're, you're a musician yourself? Eh, that's yeah. generous, but yes, I play piano. Okay. So the idea of when you're in a, in a group or working with someone you've known for a long time, is it's really very, it's, it's not like a relationship or like a love affair. It is. So then that aspect of it becomes very, very tricky. So in, in other words, to answer your question, the short answer would be details comes down to very, very specific details. Like we had a, like in Arthur's Landing, one of the huge fights we had was one of Arthur's songs. Joyce liked to kind of rap, kind of talk in sometimes at the beginning of the song, but once the groove got going, she would just kind of say something or talk. And sometimes it was charming and sometimes it was too cute. Sometimes it didn't work. And at some point, she had said something about an alarm clock, which we thought was just like totally off the wall and interesting. So we're going to leave it in. And then I don't know if I think Brennan added an alarm clock ringing to the track and Peter just went completely insane. He said, this is too literal. You know, why are you making it so specific? And you know, why, it's already very explicit. And for weeks we had a fight. We fought about that. 
and I was in the middle because I was kind of I was kind of both ways. But those two, they're the two main producers that were that, that was to them, and that came down to everything that they thought was important rested on that detail. And then other things that would be like, which Arthur would be the same way as like the sound of bass drum. Arthur would spend in the studio before the musicians came in, he would spend the morning three or four hours working on the sound of the bass drum because that was what it was all based on. And other people thought that was completely insane. But some people he worked with, like Bob Blank, who he did most of his producing with, understood that. And so they would spend six hours tuning or trying to get the sound of the bass drum. People who do mixing have that kind of focus on detail. I don't. No, I, can, I do it for, for, for certain bursts. But people can do that for hours on end, like to think about this one particular detail, what it sounds like. And then to go from there to the EQ of it, and then how it looks visually, the EQ. In the EQ, we also got into sometimes visually mixing. So Cedar Quistos had a thing of the pyramid mix, which is the EQ was done like that, which is kind of cheating because often the vocals are in the middle anyway, where you're mixing. What resonates for me about that as somebody who was played a bit with other people and been in studio situations is that any of those individual conflicts, you can say they don't matter, but they actually do, you know, like the placement of the alarm clock actually does matter. And I can understand yes. in its sixth way, how it becomes proxy for all the other battles about creativity and interpretation. <laughs> well, here's the bittersweet part. I think Peter was right, but now he doesn't talk to me. So I can't tell him. Maybe he'll, he'll listen to this. But yeah, for me, I put the music first. And sometimes I think that was a mistake in terms of I could have put relationships before. Mm. So the, the, there was a comment made about John Martin when he, after he got divorced, that he was married to a singer. They were both folk singers together. So after he was divorced, his wife said it was inevitable because you can't really have a relationship with a singer. All of their emotions go into their songs, into their singing. And there was nothing left over for me. Wow. So that's an interesting way of looking at it. Something else that strikes me is that so many of you and your friends and colleagues who came together around the scene and around Arthur, who continued to sort of work together in various ways over the years and certainly through Arthur's Landing, it seems there's a bit of an irony in the fact that the thing that kept you all together also caused some of those relationships to break apart, whether it was over questions of interpretation or, I don't know. Does that resonate? Yes. Yeah. I'm also thinking in terms of like, it had kind of like a half-life that it could really, no, I'm really proud of the work that we did together. And, and also it got done before some of us were kind of running out of, maybe possibly running out of energy in terms of getting older. So in terms of our playing, being able, being able to play, especially Peter, he was really at his peak. That, that album we did for Strut, his playing is just sublime. And also Elodie, who, you know, she's passed away. She was playing the keyboards and singing. Her attitude was it's that I shouldn't struggle to keep, to keep it together as a band, that it was a project that we got together and we did our take on these songs and then that was it. But for me, it sort of transformed into meeting younger people who were in Arthur's music or working with my sister was very powerful for me. And also doing some of it, doing, doing some of it on my own as well. Like when we went to do the remix album, neither Peter, the two producers, Peter and Norbrenner were working to me. I mean, I'm going to end up being like the real villain in all of this, which I don't mind. It's, uh, 
Yeah, I once made a list for a promoter friend in Orlando about all the musicians I'd worked with in the Arthur Zanuck project. And it was it came out to be over 10 years, it was about 50 different people, different musicians in different cities, Europe, Canada, in Asia, who all shared the love of Arthur's music, which that's pretty impressive on its own. But of those people, I remarked, and that was a couple of years ago, maybe a handful of them were still speaking to me or in touch with me. So I think there's a certain aspect of burning out in terms of doing the music that I was willing to threaten some of my friends in order to get the music done. And sometimes I have regrets about that, but not. But I'm still very proud of the of the recording we did. I think some of those recordings are really stellar in terms of not only their sound, but the freedom we had within them to relate to each other as, a, as, as an homage, to be, in terms of being faithful to his approach. As we sort of approach the end of our time together, I, I did want to ask you a little bit about Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg in particular and his sort of interaction with and influence on your scene and relationships, but also you as a songwriter and as a lyricist, are like, is your self-conception, are you a poet? The two things were separate before because I was studying poetry like in this very serious way. I was part of the poetry scene, St. Mark's, as well as the Columbia scene. So uptown and downtown, I was trying to be like a bridge between both. And I was also playing in pop bands while I was in school. So, but for me, that was kind of for fun. Then after I was working with, first with Alan, who introduced me to Arthur, and then working with Arthur, like Arthur was the first one who took me seriously. I was pretty unsure about my own songwriting capabilities. I was also in comparison to him. He, it was like, you know, showing Duke Ellington your, <laughs> your exercises or something. But it's very poignant because the only two songs that we wrote together, he wrote very few songs with other people, were songs that he actually finished because I didn't, I, I wasn't happy with the one song that Lost in Thought. I had just very pretty beginning. Okay. Lost in Thought, which is just repeated. Lost in Thought. Lost in Thought. Lost in Thought. Well, at least it was broken, but then changed to Lost in Thought. Lost in thought, and I said, I'm not going to finish this, it's too pretty. He said, well, don't be afraid of writing something pretty. Maybe you're good at that. So he wrote the second part, which is complicated, and added the story. Something that I want to say, that I can't come home. I can't come home, you know where I am, even if I talk. I still can't come home. So he wrote the bridge, and it goes back to Lost in Thought. And then the other song we wrote together, he wrote the chorus, and he wrote it in a high register for my high voice. Yeah, so that, that's interesting to think about that. How do you feel about pretty songs now? Because that, that is a very pretty song. Um, I have no problem with it. Yeah. I, I've been sort of going back over the Beatles and I'm thinking of doing a bunch of covers and one challenge is to do a Beatles song to find what to do. So I'm thinking of here, there. I'm also thinking of that girl, girl. And you get to boy, boy. To take a bunch of pop songs and to change the pronouns in them to make them more um, queer yeah. as an exercise. So Paul, there was an interview with Paul where he said he was, they were kind of embarrassed about releasing yesterday because they thought of themselves as a rock and roll band. So that's interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
before they got completely psychedelic, that the sort of rubber soul revolver era when they were transitioning, there's some great ballads tucked away in there. Michelle. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's yeah. When stuff. I was a boy, I was obsessed with Michelle. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any anecdotes you can share about Ginsburg? Well, just maybe, just maybe a couple of sayings. One thing that he would say was the only good thing about money is you can throw it at problems until they go away. <laughs> so I always think about that because in terms of how do you approach money? And then also Arthur had a saying about he did want to become famous and also to make money. And he got a taste of that when he was alive because a couple of his disco songs just made a, suddenly made a lot of money that he was just sitting there like giving a whole bunch of cash like all of a sudden. So he got a taste of that. But he said his his main idea of collaborating with his friends was to create a fountain of money that would just rain down on his friends. So I like that idea too. So that's a couple of uh, good quotes. Yeah, that's beautiful. You need the upside down umbrella for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, the thing about Alan was that Arthur helped Alan with learning the basics of doing music, but Alan's whole thing was that he had a difficult childhood. And he said, I just, this is my second childhood. I just, you know, I want to be a rock star and just be silly and sing these crazy songs and people will let me get away with it. And so Arthur and I helped him to uh, do that. So I like this idea of like a second childhood. Like that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I hope for that for you. Thank you. Thank you for, for spending time and, and sharing. I, it's, it's... Well, it's my pleasure. And you've got, you've got uh, my Bowie anecdote. I've got Bowie in the background. So Arthur was a great admirer of Bowie. We both were. And this one letter, he said, when I was in Hong Kong, he sent me a long letter which said, I love Bowie and you, he said to me. So that was like, uh, that was interesting. But when I was working with um, Steve DeQuisto on the remixes of Miracle, after Arthur died, I was working with Steve DeQuisto. And before Steve DeQuisto died, we worked in Philip Glass's studio, the Looking Glass Studios. And David Bowie, we found out, was working in the same studio on another project. So I was too shy to meet him. Growing up in Scotland, he was like a god. But Steve DeQuisto was very bold. He was this very outrageous guy. And he just said, OK, no, let's just say hello to him. So then suddenly David Bowie appeared. And Dieter Christian went up to him and said, hi, we're working on this project in the other room. And David Bowie was so charming, was so nice, so polite, and also so sexy, just like you can imagine. So that was my, that was, and also he knew about the Arthur project and he, it, no, he was very respectful of that too. So, you know, so that's my Bowie, there's my Bowie anecdote. Yeah, I can't recall if I've ever heard him reference or speak of, Arthur, but I had have to no. imagine he was highly aware and yes, had to be interested. Yeah, yes, and probably very jealous because David David Bowie wanted more than anything just to be taken seriously more than anything else. Yeah, but I'm I'm a huge fan. I mean, to me, Low is just it's a great masterpiece. That's that's so, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Stephen, thank you. I'll work. Uh, it's great to speak with you, and I wish you well in your new home. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen Hall. Please make sure to stick around through the end credits for the world premiere of the latest track from Neurosta Steel's long-distance collaboration with Dropout Orchestra, entitled Please Don't. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. It's presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder. 
with post-production by Michael Donaldson and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on the podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.
next to me. 